0: Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Eunice Illumidi, and sharing some good news, I'm pleased to announce we now have a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself, Lord Michael Hastings and fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons and change makers lifting the mute button. We learn about their life's journey, how they got their big break and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd, Chris Cabot and other instances have highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limiting aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation and preventing deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized. Counterproductive for society at large, as we all know. With great power comes huge responsibility and this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guest's favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. Joining me today is the incredible Liverfirth MBE, co-founder and creative director of EcoAge, co-founder of NGO The Circle, In partnership with Annie Lennox and founder of the acclaimed Green Carpet Challenge, and most recently, the Renaissance Awards, discussing the topic Saving Tomorrow Today, the Sustainability Imperative. Welcome, Liva. It's so amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Eunice, it's so nice to be finally here with you. You know, we have been talking about doing this for a long time, and now here we are. I look
0: forward yes. to- I'm very excited and I have to be honest I met you um quite some time ago and at the time that I met you I was in this really difficult position where I was trying to navigate the world and be sustainable and nobody nobody was listening to me and I met the amazing Lucy Seagal and then I met you and it was like kind of like seeing like um that one ray of hope that there is a possible different future so I want to thank you for all the work that you do before we start. Um, but first um, I would like you to tell me about your first track which is Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Park. What memories does that conjure?
1: Well. You know, when you ask me which kind of music I listen between 17 and my early 20s, that's when I discovered Bruce Springsteen. And um has been since then, my obsession still is today that I, you know, I listen and watch to everything it does. I go to every gig. Um, I'm a big fan. And Dancing in the Park was, you know, I, I remember as a kid or oh, a kid, a young a adult at 17, looking at that. You know the concert that you know of him calling the girl on stage and and thinking, oh my god, this guy is so cool. I um, also, you know, I always loved his, um, you know, the, the the stories that he told through his music about people that were not necessarily being talked about. You know, uh, uh, lower classes America and and issues that you know they always been. Um, Quite political, so using his music to also tell different stories. And I always liked that about him as well. Amazing.
0: So, establishing the world renowned and respected Eco Age, the Circle, and coveted Green Carpets Challenge and Awards, to name but a few, are extraordinary, incredible achievements. But I'm keen to know more about just like you as a person. So let's start with the foundation. Tell us a little bit about I suppose your family and just like life in general, growing up in Rome.
1: Well, um I I think we we learned as a family and particularly like me and my sister as um, teenagers to be very resourceful um from a very young age because we grew up in a, in you know my mom and dad were um We were just the four of us. And then my parents got pregnant again when my mom was 40 and it was twins. So by when I was 12 years old and my sister was 11, we suddenly found ourselves with two twin brothers and a family that expanded to two more people. And then, you know, it was only my father's salary. So we, our teenager years were not marked by any kind of wealth and, you know, or, or um, privilege and instead we had to learn if i when people say uh you know when when did you start being sustainable like well probably growing up in a family where we couldn't afford to buy anything you know or very little then you start understanding how can you you know if uh, i don't know i think even my brothers at some point wore my jeans you know <laughs> like <laughs> this is how it goes. yes and everything and you know my mom bought the first life-saving light light bulbs um, uh, uh, when I was like 12 or 13, just to save energy, not because she wanted to, in any sense, to be eco, you know? Yeah. But we grew up... But because my my brothers arrived and my parents were in, you know, 40 and 41 at the time, um, I think that it gave them a new kind of boost of youth, uh, young parents boost. And so suddenly our family um, instead of growing up with, you know, parents that were strict or it became kind of like a commune. Okay. How can we support each other make this work? You know, I remember me and my sister, you know, spending endless, um, Saturday evenings at, in our home, hosting parties at our home so that we could babysit my brothers and my parents could go out, you know, like, um, which gave, gave us a real sense of, um, um, I think a sense of living in a community and also of, of interdependence from each other as a, as a nuclear, as a family. But also, um, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in, a, in an environment where there was quite liberal in terms of politics as well. So there, a lot of questions being asked and lots of discussions. So I, I grew up, in spite of the fact that I grew up in Italy, which is kind of a insular country, if you think about it, and also particularly in the 70s um, and quite provincial in that sense. But in spite of that, I grew up with a curiosity, uh, you know, for what was happening outside of Italy and, and you know, in the rest of the world. Um, and, and that, I think, is one of the most important um, gifts that my parents instilled in me and my brother and sister, is that curiosity.
0: Amazing. Do you think that that kind of affected your sense of style? Like, how would you describe your sense of fashion?
1: Oh my god! I never thought about fashion ever (laughs) in my life until until me. No, until 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 I met you. No, until I went. (laughs) I think until. Just before my first trip to Bangladesh in two thousand and eight, which is the year you know the year before I met Lucy Siegel, this is uh, that you um uh, credited earlier on the, the the journalist and writer and broadcaster and uh, also also Castro founded Aesthetica at the time, uh Justin Whipple, women that were working along sustainable fashion, I always been a you know I was a very much of an activist, but I never linked fashion to activism. And I never I was I never even bought a fashion magazine growing up. I've always been ca- quite conservative in my in my style. But then when I started understanding the, the repercussion of the fashion industry, particularly from the point of view of social justice, then I you know I decided to use fashion as a, an advocacy tool. And then I became interested. And then through the years, obviously, you know. As eco age went along, and we did the Green Carpet Challenge, the Green Carpet Fashion Awards, and it, you, you, I started to meet a lot of these fashion designers, having conversation and falling in love with that sense of like with that side of fashion in terms of design and creativity. But um, otherwise, I've, I never. I mean, I, I could say I became a fashion person in my late thirties, early forties, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. same I was agreeing with you I was saying I'm the same like it's it's funny that isn't it it's so interesting um what I want to ask you actually next is what drew you to film and what drew you to I suppose your first venture in that world
1: When I was younger, I worked with a um, film producer in Rome. That was my uh, second job. And I was in a production company for five years. That was my training. And that's also when I went to Colombia on a film set and famously met Colin. And when I was doing production coordinator and then I went on producing uh, documentaries. And my um, first documentary came out naturally from my doctorate at a university on a film director called Giuseppe Tornatore that did a movie called Cinema Paradiso. And I, I made a documentary about the relationship between a, a filmmaker or author like Giuseppe Tornatore and Sicily's land and you know his upbringing. But it was only after I produced my second documentary which was on the Black Panthers. Was called in prison my whole life. Um, that went to the Sundance Film Festival. That then I really understood the power of advocacy through cinema. Because you know, you can read reports, you can read stories, articles, and you know, really shrug your shoulder or shrink and say, "Oh my God, this is terrible." And then, then you forget about it. You you go on with your life. But if you watch a movie or a documentary about something that really touches you, you will never forget about it. So okay. visual advocacy is very, very powerful. And and that's where, you know, what that imprisoned My Whole Life um, documentary experience taught me and and also was the time where, you know, we, by the end of the documentary going to Sundance, that we opened EcoAge, then I went to Bangladesh, and then I went on to the red carpets to do the Green Carpet Challenge, and I remember, the first time that I stepped on the red carpet um, for the Green Carpet Challenge at the Golden Globe in 2010 and causing all that attention because I was talking about sustainable fashion, Mm. I thought to myself, well, if you want fashion, I'll give you fashion, but we're talking about the same stuff. I I guess between movie, visual advocacy and and fashion, they're two super powerful tools to talk about some issues that we need to discuss. 100 percent yeah what
0: is there any film in particular that you found made a kind of long-term impact on you not necessarily in this specific industry but that
1: particularly inspired you you know my movie my um I I studied cinema university so I I I watched probably as a student millions of movies reviewed them studied you know semiotic that's so
0: interesting. I never knew that you studied semiotics as well. Yeah,
1: um, I'm full of surprises.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but um, I'm quite obsessed
0: with it um, yeah. uh, myself.
1: You know, there are definitely movies that have have touched me in a in a very very deep sense. Cinema Paradiso was one of those, and mm-hmm. and that's you know why I wrote my doctorate about it. Um, I recently lost my grandmother, and I think that the end scene of All the Kisses—I don't know if you watched that movie—but it's so beautiful, and you know, it, it talks a lot about death, and you know, like it's beautiful. And then another movie that is incredible and that has touched me a lot and stayed with me and will always stay with me is *A Single Man*, the Tom Ford movie that Colin was nominated for and won awards with. I think at the time, I, you know, it was interesting because it's such a personal movie. And 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 Tom, I remember at the time was dismissed by some because oh, he was a fashion director; he couldn't, you know, the movie was too perfect or whatever. But the movie was so powerful. I think I watched it twenty times, and I still cry every time I see it. You know, and that with the music. But I also love like really silly movies. And my perfect night in is a you know watching a a silly romantic comedy empty my head so (laughs) you know there are there is a variety of of films that can stay with me for different reasons. (laughs) Great.
0: Speaking of music, um your next track Crazy in Love by Beyoncé, is there a message in the music?
1: I think it's more the message in Beyonce. Yes
0: work. I love
1: it. People who know me well know how absolutely I love dancing. And I every excuse I can to dance, I do. And, you know, in my early 30s, I think I started listening to Beyonce and really falling in love with this super strong, you know. I mean, we had Whitney Houston as well. It's like that like super strong woman that will rock you on the dance floor. And, you know, I mean, Crazy in Love is one of the songs, but there could be many different ones. Brilliant. And
0: I'm excited that you chose it. Thank you very much. (laughs) One of your projects took you to the US where you met the icon and racial justice warrior, Angela Davies, literally, and various other icons. How did that occur? And what did you learn from the experience?
1: That I think has been one of the experiences that shaped my life more than anything else, and we are talking about the documentary that I produced called "In Prison My Whole Life" about um, death row in my uh, that is not on death row anymore, f- thanks to the documentary as well, the Mumia Abu Jamal in, in Philadelphia, and it came out, and that tells you a lot about the fact that what I've always been driven in life has been curiosity. And then I've always had the privilege. I've been always so lucky to feel supported to then explore that curiosity and always been lucky enough to, being able to gather a lot of people around me to go forward into, in a quest or in a journey. And I remember the first time I heard about Mumia Abu Jamal, uh, I didn't even know who he was. And we were at a dinner party in London and this kid tells me, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, I just finished uni and I want to write a story about Momia. I was like, who is Momia? I said, oh, well, you know, he told me the stories. An ex-Black Panther who was accused of having killed a white policeman in Philadelphia has been on death row since the day I was born. And my mom is an activist. And every day, every birthday, she's reminded me, that you are four and Mumia is still in prison. You are 15, Mumia still in prison. You are 21, Mumia is still in prison. So now I need to go and get this guy, I meet this guy. And I remember coming back home and Googling Mumia Abu Jamal and this like Pandora base exploded. Some people calling him a saint, other people calling him a murderer. And I was like, what, what on earth? And I, I left, I went to America with my brother and a, and a camera. And I thought, well, you know what, let's go and understand more about this guy. Then because of Colin, I had, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to open a lot of door and go and talk about, you know, what happened to Mumia, but more broadly about racial issues in America and the Black Panthers to People like Angela Davis, Alice Walker, um, Snoop Dogg, Mostef, Noam Chomsky. I mean, I, I met the most extraordinary people and it's been like, spending two years in university studying only that. And I learned so much and I realized how ignorant I was growing up in Italy and not really hearing about any of this and not, you know, um, I I don't even know if I can use this as an excuse, the fact that it was pre-computers and pre-phones and pre-internet, you know, because there, there was no excuse that people were not talking about it. And and that informed a lot. And you know, you you mentioned in your opening about um, George Floyd and you know Black Lives Matter in the twenties, two thousand and twenty. And I remember at the time, everyone, oh, Black Lives Matter has just arrived. I said, no, it's been there forever. And this issue is so old; like this has been happening for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And Mumia is still in prison. A lot of people, like it's it, like it's, it, it keeps perpetrating that mm-hmm. by hearing the stories of the you know the history of the Black Panther is studying such so in-depth about it, it I I understood it's almost like you understand how wrong everything has gone you know in, in such, yeah. a, such a level that it, it's almost impossible to comprehend in a way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah that's why we are thankful to people like you who make documentaries because it's a much more just a good way sometimes to receive information I think it's kind of like when I do stand-up comedy or something it's like I can talk about really complex issues but cinema like theatre and performance and art has this ability to not make the person receiving the information feel like you are kind of putting them on the spot or trying to make them feel anything you're just giving them the opportunity to come to their own conclusions so this is why we love film, I suppose um but yeah I'd like to go a bit back to Equage because it's amazing um and I think it's awesome and I know it had its kind of humble beginnings in London West London what inspired its inception how did it grow to this kind of phenomenal world-renowned
1: platform? Well, thank you for, say, phenomenon world-renowned. Why <laughs> um, is no, it is? Well, I think it's my brother's fault, the whole eco-age beginning, because, you know, at the time... So my brother and I, he's 12 years younger than me, as I said, you know, my, one of my two twin brothers. We were working at the time together on this documentary in America. He was one of the cameramen. And one day, he was living in London, and one day he said, where would you go to to buy solar panel and this was like 2006 say 2007 and I was like I have no idea he said exactly it doesn't exist it doesn't exist a shop on the high street <laughs> get in mm-hmm. so anyway to cut a very long story short we opened EcoAges as a shop That sold every single solution and consulted on solution for your perfect eco-home. So from furniture to flooring to rugs and wallpapers and lamps and whatever. It was really cool. And again, because of our curiosity, I think as a brother and sister, and never, you know, always wanted to adapt to the times and understand, you know, what's next, what's next, and being driven by other people's ideas as well we evolved the college through the years into the consultancy that it is today at the beginning you know the consultants is it was for the home and then i remember at the time the government cameron um scrapped all the subsidies for um any sustainable solution for the home like solar panels and stuff so basically our business kind of collapsed because we were relying on on this funding from the government to convince some homeowners to do more better insulations or alternative you know energy and and so but at the same time we got requests to do um various shops for a big global brand and so we did that and then you know um then Wembley Stadium came in and it was one of our first um cl- big client and the Football Association, and we've been working with them for many, many, many years. And then fashion came and I went to Bangladesh and I was like, what's happening? Are you really, really telling me that fashion has this impact on the environment and on people? And so then we started to introduce fashion and then the Green Carpet Challenge arrived. And then we thought, you know what, forget about the shop, let's close the shop because we have something in our hands that is way bigger than that. And we can truly help companies to want to find sustainable business solutions and then help them to implement them and communicating them. Yeah. Um, and so we became the first, we still are, the first um, 360 degrees totally integrated sustainable consultancy. Um, and the best. And the best, of course, we are. And the most authentic and real. Um, I've never met any
0: other ones that were so good. Really, it's true. It's so awesome. (laughs) Tell us a bit about your other venture, The Circle, which I know is an NGO and includes fabulous partners such as Annie Lennox.
1: Well, actually, it was Annie's idea because um, at the time, we were both um, global Oxfam ambassadors. And uh, Annie was also a, a UNHCR ambassador, UNAIDS, Sorry, and she traveled um, a lot with 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 Oxfam or the UN. And she, I remember her saying, you know, wherever I go, no matter where, in which country, or the circumstances, there are always I always end up in a circle, sitting in a circle with the women locally, discussing things. And I wonder whether we could do something that. It's not just about signing a check for a charity, but it's about using our skills as professional women to help other women and, and empower them. And that, that's how the circle um, was founded. And at the beginning, we operated within Oxfam, and then we became an independent NGO more than 10 years ago. You know, we do some of the work that I'm the most proudest of you know, it's a big network of women from all walks of life. There is a very, very mighty lawyers circle um, with with whom we've done an incredible project. They created the first ever legislation proposal on living wages in the fashion industry. And we submitted to the EU parliament last year. And I think only on something like the circle could have done that. And it's our speciality. It's like when you put women together to solve an issue, we solve we solve it. True. Like, <laughs> it's as yeah. simple as that. <laughs> Gotta work. You know how we do. Yeah. You know.
0: Amazing, 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 amazing. Tell us about the final piece of music, "Wings or Dancers" by Luca Firth.
1: My baby. Well, our oldest son Luca, uh, who is twenty-one now. He, I remember him um, being in high school and, you know, the way in, in England, there's this fantastic scheme called Battle of the Bands where, you know, kids in school can compete and they have to write their own music, whether they are solo or a band. And, and Luca um, did, uh, participate in Battle of the Band at his school and Colin and I went to see him. He was like 16, I think. And he was alone on stage with the guitar. And he wrote a, a song and Colin and I never heard him singing at home or playing and suddenly start playing and we're like who is this guy it's like is that our son like where does he come from he won that battle of the band and then went to the Isle of Wight to perform and as he finished school he started to you know being this is what he wants to be he's a musician and he he, com- he writes, he composes, and you know, he, he records everything by himself and um, without us ever knowing anything. So even in the case of this album, Wings, that he released last year, he recorded during the lockdown, uh, we were in Umbria, and he recorded in the garage all by himself. And when the album came out, we were like, oh, okay, I guess we have a musician at home. This is pretty good. It's so cool. I and he's it. done like everything by himself and refused any support. you know offer support yeah, yeah. and it's a really beautiful song album and uh, very personal and you know these two songs wings and um dances are you know indie folks um they're very beautiful and uh, obviously as a mom i i i love to support my son but i i will listen to them even if he wasn't my son <laughs> Oh, that's so cute. I love it. <laughs> so
0: in the environmental space, amongst other descriptions, you're known as, I'd say, an activist, possibly professional agitator. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I call myself a professional agitator because everyone always says, oh, my God, Livia, will, will you just stay quiet for a second? I, I'm always like, we need to do this. We need to solve this issue. We need to do that. and yeah. And I, I always like to stir things up and I'm kind of like I'm like not taking things at, at, you know as they are you know I'm pretty good I think at calling greenwashing or um you know and as I said I like maybe be, not maybe because of my upbringing because of there's so many things that I've done like as a, as a documentary producer or easy you know and mostly because of my travels with Oxfam at the beginning and then with EcoAge and supply chains i've been like bangladesh zambia botswana in the amazon like i've seen millions of factories i spoke to millions of people i re- i think i'm someone who really really hates injustice i and and when i say injustice i speak m- mostly about the fact that I don't understand, and I never will, why some lives are valued less than others. Same, and and that is something that drives me crazy. And so when I see when when there is that at stake, and you know, and that's why for me when we talk about sustainable fashion, yes, the climate and the environmental impact, da da da, but for me it's, it's way more about the social impact. It's about these women in Bangladesh that are enslaved to produce the clothes that we wear. And and guess what, if they weren't enslaved, fast fashion wouldn't exist. And therefore there wouldn't be a gigantic environmental impact and the problem that we have today, you know, with the tons of clothes that get churned out because they get produced by slave modern uh, slaves, basically. Yeah, that's why I I agitate, I guess. I love it, (laughs) and I do it
0: too, so it's so cool. I'm really glad that you do um it's so important um and again using art using film your organization all these different ways I I mean it's like I feel like it's really inspirational especially for like the next generation who can like look at what you've done and see all the different ways that you've done it and I love it because you don't just make film you don't just do art and fashion you kind of provide through Equage this 360 opportunity for anybody that is actually serious and does actually want to make a difference, which I think is awesome. So this year you launched the Renaissance Awards. Given your kind of formidable ongoing impact, why is this event so, so important?
1: We started last year actually out of, um, so before it was, last year was the year of the first COP after the pandemic. You know, the UN published this very, very green report. And we were all very, very depressed. <laughs> we were just working on a sustainable fashion project. And we thought, what are we, what are we doing? It's like, we, this is way bigger than fashion. And, you know, how do we solve this mess? And then we started actually looking around us and there are so many young leaders all over the world that are actually working on solutions already. They don't even talk about it anymore. They're doing it. Yeah. Everywhere. We need to highlight their voices. We need to pass the microphone to them. First of all, because they are building the future right now, the way that we need to build it. Mm -hmm. But also because they are the future, you know, and and they need to, to have a voice and decisions on how, what does this look like? And so we created the Renaissance Awards and last year was still like, we were coming out of COVID. We couldn't do it really properly. So we made a movie. Yeah, in, I was there, uh, I think so,
0: Yeah, think the next one.
1: Yeah, in uh, another movie in um, in uh, Palazzo Vecchio we filmed okay. with augmented reality and we hologram like, you know, like celebrities and presenters in there or we filmed them in green screen and then put them inside the film and highlighted the story of 12 young leaders from all over the world. This year, finally, we could all be together in Florence. And and we also did a, a, a summit called the Possibilists Day with Changemaker Exchange, which is a fantastic NGO that works with young leaders and young activists from all over the world. And they moderated this day, which was so, beautiful. And we had leaders from Ecuador, from Africa, you know, from America, from Asia, like all all these young people exchanging not only their solutions, but also their, you know, what their anxieties and, you know, uh, how, how do we go forward without feeling depressed by, you know, being left out? Uh, Are we really involved in society? Are people listening to us? And, and it was such a beautiful beautiful days and it's one of the projects that gives me the most hope because wherever you look around it's pretty depressing right now and to know that these young leaders exist and even now at COP27 where you know quite frankly I have very little hope that anything is going to happen they these young voices are there in fact Sophia Chiani one of the recipient this year is is there right now speaking um and and you know, these are devices the that need to be at the negotiation table, you know, these are the stories that we, and the solution that we need to adopt, you know, for, for the future. I think so,
0: definitely. And uh, we touched a point earlier, um, obviously, the heinous killing of George Floyd, um, what were your kind of initial thoughts when that story broke?
1: I wasn't surprised. There have been millions of George Floyds. But I was so happy that it happened during COVID and during the pandemic. And Because I think if it happened two years before, it would have just been another story that no one would have paid attention. But because it happened after a year of lockdown and the, the tension was heightened, it exploded everywhere. Like there were marches in Italy in London, like every, literally everywhere in the world. And it was so beautiful to witness the world coming together for this and for this injustice and the the incredulity, I don't know how to say, like- Yeah, it's like the people, and I guess in that instance, I was privileged because I, I had the opportunity with Prison My Whole Life documentary to learn so much about that story. But a lot of people, that was the moment that they started their education about it. You know, you want to believe that that was the moment that affected a wider change, a yeah. systemic change. We shall see whether is the real change or just the you know window shopping. I think um.
0: The FTSE 100 said that there's actually been a, a retrograde step back with the Black SEALs falling to zero, actually. <laughs> um, um, and it's a similar story in some of the kind of around the globe, really. Um, what do you think we can do to kind of address this?
1: I think we just need to keep talking about it and pointing the fingers. and we have to. It's the only way to go forward is just keep pointing the finger. It's one of the biggest issues of our life, and we have to we can't let it slip and we can't even like okay. I think we just have to be i I don't like for example, with eco age, we never ever call out I mean obviously we call out fast fashion brands and stuff like that, but we think it's it's better to create an environment where you know you take people by the hand and you walk them through, but in the inclusivity space and and diversity mm-hmm. diversity. like you have to stop calling out and pointing fingers you have to and it's so ingrained you know it's so ingrained it's quite difficult though
0: because I remember when I kind of did that it was, it was really bad for my career <laughs> like and it kind of wasn't very good because there's a lot of people who are much more successful than me in my industry and they, they it's more like because they don't do anything that's what kind of makes it more difficult but I definitely think that as you said at least now uh, people are talking about it and and I can see because now you know in a post George Floyd world everyone's kind of talking about it which is better
1: than when I was kind of talking about I suppose but if- if you take fashion, for example, and the power that fashion has, I, I guess, it's like that at least was the George Floyd was the beginning of some very very important conversations in the fashion industry, and some people coming out and uh, you know also giving incredible solutions like uh, uh, Aurora James in the in the US, which this year we honored with the. Bring up a fashion awards, you know, and her fifteen um, percent pledge. So, like calling out retailers and saying you need to give at least fifteen percent of your business to black-owned fashion brands. And I think these are initiatives that we need to support. We need to, you know, make sure that they keep happening. And you know, and you see it in fashion, even in on the catwalk, on you know covers, and um, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully brands are starting to take in the issue more seriously and addressing it in a different way, hopefully. As I said, it, it, you know, only time will tell whether this is real and sincere or whether it's just a moment and window dressing and, you know, and greenwashing. Yep, definitely. I think you're 100% right.
0: Um, BBI has a business charter and butterfly kite mark, which they plan to launch and accelerate next year. So we're definitely going to be reaching out to equal age about that. Um, And I suppose, do you, I think what BBI tends to do is they like to ask guests to make a commitment to racial justice. So um, I feel like you already do that. Um, so I suppose we will just encourage you to continue to do that with your amazing documentary work that you do that really does draw attention to these issues, um, which is why I find particularly the Fashionscape series so powerful. Um, but yes, I just wanna say thank you so, so much Um, for everything that you do. Um, Sadly, I think that's all we have time for, but I could literally sit and talk to you forever. Thank you so, so much, Livia, for joining me today, opening up about your amazing, fascinating and remarkable relationships and future aspirations. I know this episode will stay with all of us for such a long time. Please join us next time on BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon business leader or a famous personality until then please subscribe review and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts if you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fair society please contact us at info@blackbusinessinstitute.com. until next time goodbye